I ran across this small piece of poetry from Thomas Hardy. Now, Hardy was born in 1840 in England, and it was a real downer of a novelist, not really someone who's going to help you out with your seasonal depression. In fact, The Guardian wrote a whole spread on him in 2015 entitled Bleakness is My Weakness. Which of Hardy's novels is the most grim? And it has this caption underneath which says, Thomas Hardy, the very name suggests, resigns stoicism in the face of an unfeeling universe. In his novels, plans are always thwarted and dreams are always dashed. But which of his timeless tales contains the most AMPS, abject misery per sentence? We picked up the collected works and get ready for some pain. Now, you can't see this helpful infographic, uh, but since we're, we're using the imagination as the prime agent of human perception, you'll have to just bear with me for a sec. So on the right-hand side, there's this bleakness key, and we have a variety of bleaknesses, such as suicide, execution, murder, and miscarriage, death. And on the left side of the page are Hardy's novels, and you can rank each novel by the amount of bleakness which is in each novel. And you can see it culminating towards the end of the page with his two novels, Jude the Obscure and The Well-Beloved, which are decorated with bleakness like ornaments on a Christmas tree. Common cast members, according to The Guardian in Hardy's novels, include the dark-haired, passionate woman, description, proud and independent, force of nature, clearly doomed from the outset. Or The Pale Innocent, description, fairly conventional Victorian maiden, numb from ill use. Or The Cad, description, textbook sexual predator, superficially charming, lovable, but dead on the inside. The Noble Yokel, description, self-reliant loner, steadfastly devoted to an unattainable lady. Or The Idealist, a man aspiring to a slightly better life, but punished by fate for his high-flown notions. And don't forget about the secondary characters like the domineering parent, the vengeful crone, or the doomed child with a pretentious name. Some of his quotes from the books are quite bleak, which we won't read here, but some of the most highly reoccurring bleak words are trouble, bad, lonely, cold, strange, poor, dead, wrong, alone, miserable, sadness, misery, sorrow, difficulty, grave, grief, grief, and darkness. The word happy is mentioned 50 times, in three books. However, most of those instances are qualified or negative. G.K. Chesterton had kind of a scathing summary when he said that Hardy was like the village atheist, contemplating the village idiot. Now, when Hardy was young and he became close with uh, what turned out to be his best friend, Horace, was a preacher's son and quickly became a mentor to him. Um, and after that, he tried to enroll in private school attend a university, but mostly failed because of his financial situation and social rank. And this beginning rejection started to creep into his life and into his poetry and into his novels as this shadow of darkness. And then in 1873, his best friend Horace committed suicide, which really affected him um, for a long time. Uh, and a year after that, he married Emma. Both parents objected to his marriage. Um, and as very, very quickly his relationship started to sour, Hardy started going after other women, and the bleakness of his novels kind of continued to increase. It all seemed to culminate in his novel, Jude the Obscure, where in this novel, uh, Jude, who's the father, and Sue, the mother, um, their eldest child was called Little Father Time because of his old-fashioned demeanor and mature outlook on life, which made him very melancholy. Throughout the novel, the family faced a lot of societal pressures, 
because Jude and Sue live together without being married. And then one day, little Father Time overhears his parents talking about their hardships and how it would have been much easier without children. And little Father Time takes the weight of the world on his shoulders and kills his two siblings and then hangs himself, leaving only this note, done, because we are too many. The year Hardy wrote this novel was in 1895, and just 130 miles away in London, Francis Thompson, a man homeless and struggling with extreme poverty and an opioid addiction, thinking of himself and perhaps also some of the popular novels that Hardy had written, wrote in The Hound of Heaven, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. But Hardy, atheist though he may be, and in full-blown flight from God, when he writes poetry, you can hear some of these eternal realities breaking through upon his bleak existence. God himself banging on his door, those strong feet that followed, followed after, and drawing out some recognition of the truth, almost against his will, against his reason, against his better judgment. It's like Emily says, but hope that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all, that, that hope continued to call out to Hardy. And so in 1899, when he was 60 years old, on New Year's Eve, it was frigid outside, and Thomas Hardy sat down by his writing desk, and that great hound of heaven caught up to his door as Hardy picked up his pen and wrote these lines. I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was specter gray, and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres, and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the century's corpse outlent, his crypt the cloudy canopy, his wind the death lament. The ancient pulse of German birth was shrunken, hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead in a full-hearted even song of joy illimited, an aged thrush, frail, gaunt and small, in blast beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the, the growing gloom. So little cause for caroling of such a static sound was written on terrestrial things, afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. And this poem is called The, the Darkling Thrush. And, and Hardy's imagination had caught something here. It had apprehended something that his reason was struggling to comprehend, something eternal, something beyond him. And this is where I'm reliant on much of Malcolm Geith's thoughts on, on Hardy in this poem. Um, but C.S. Lewis captured it when he said, the two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth on the other side, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. And nearly all I believed to be real, I thought grim 
and meaningless. And you can see these two divides show up in this poem. The first couple stanzas, right? Bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres. You know, uh, the land's sharp features seem to be the century's corpse outlent. Every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. And then there's this thrush, this little bird that just confounds Hardy. Somehow pops up out of nowhere while he's leaning on this gate. And he uses words like full-hearted evensong, pointing to you know, the Anglican prayers and mentions terrestrial things. And if you say terrestrial things, you kind of infer, well, what's the opposite of terrestrial? You, know, you infer heavenly things. And then he leaves us with this, this irony where he says in the last line, some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware, but he is aware. He's the one writing the poem. You know, he seems to be very aware. And this deity, uh, this man chasing him through his bleak circumstances as he flees down the nights and flees down the days and flees down the arches of the years and flees down the labyrinth ways of his own mind and in the midst of tears hides from God. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, that great hound of heaven Sniffing around his front door on New Year's Eve, the cold outside, he titles his new piece of poetry, The Darkling Thrush, and writes, I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was specter gray, and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres, and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the sentry's corpse outlent, his crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, his death lament. The ancient pulse of German birth was shrunken, hard, and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead, in a full-hearted evensong of joy illimited, an aged thrush, frail, gaunt, and small, in blast-beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for caroling of such a static sound was written on terrestrial things, afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air, some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware.